Foo Bar's World Fuck Up with Joe Forrester and Hannah East. Hello, I'm Jay Forrester and welcome to FUBAR's World Fuck Up, the show that has more of an impact than England and Wales fans hitting each other with patio furniture in Tenerife. And it's heartache for so many as some teams leave the World Cup, but a whole different type of pain for Christian Pulisic. Ouch. Meanwhile, it's back off to the old folks' home for Belgium's warring pensioners, and we wave goodbye to the Germans as they put in yet another World Cup performance that's about as convincing as Cristiano Ronaldo flagrantly trying to claim a teammate's goal. Now, as Jack Grealish would say, today's show really is the best thing since sliced veg. Coming <laughs> up, we chat to rapper Avellino, speak to football journalist Liam Baker about just why Denmark was so dismal. We're joined by a FIFA whistle, <laughs> a FIFA. We're joined by a FIFA whistleblower to discuss the rampant corruption within world football's governing body, and we're talking England songs in what turns out to be something of a music-themed show um it's not just me of course i am here with hannah um and if you think you've had an exciting week it's nothing nothing on hannah um hannah how was uh his majesty king charles the <laughs> third <laughs> as if i was just chilling with uh, king charles on tuesday um but yeah my dad got an mba he was awarded an mba on tuesday so me my mum my auntie phyllis uh we went to uh <laughs> make them sound about 90 uh we went to uh windsor castle on tuesday it was it was epic i was like three two and a half three meters away from king charles he's quite small actually i thought he was a little bit taller but he's are you he allowed to like... say that will you end up in the tower of london for saying that yeah <laughs> take me to the dungeons um but he was absolutely amazing and the reason he was amazing was because he had somebody that was whispering into his ear each person's name and what they were getting their award for. But he was just so focused on that individual and he was chatting and my dad managed to make him laugh because King Charles said, oh, you know, so where is it you're from, Paul? And my dad was like, oh, from Scarborough. And King Charles was like, oh, Scarborough's a wonderful place. I love it. And my dad was like, well, uh, William and Kate were there the other week, you know, at Rainbow Centre where I was. And then uh, King Charles was like, oh yeah, Scarborough's wonderful. And my dad was like, well, actually as locals call it Scarbados. And at that point, King Charles started laughing and so did my dad, but there's this amazing picture of them both like howling it was brilliant so. very good very good mr grillman that's a yeah. bit how he next, next. Um, <laughs> that's weird though isn't it if they become mates and they're down spoons in, in Scarpados. <laughs> right well there you go loads coming up on today's show as we say but first things first let's talk england manchester united and more with rapper avelino um right let's bring avelino in hello mate how you doing i'm doing great man just uh <laughs> Left the gym, you know what that does to you, you know what I mean? I'm pumped and ready for the day. I'm ready to yeah. talk some football. Yes. yes, yes, let's do it. Well, let's talk football. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about Manchester United players playing for England. How are you finding mm -hmm. it? Really good, you know. Um, we all know Marcus Rashford's the best player in the world. Um, oh my yeah, God, I love you already. Love you already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um... Obviously, just United in general can all see, you know, the best players play for um, my football club just across the tournament. You know, Marcus Rashford, Bruno Fernandes, Casemiro, just all doing brilliant stuff for their team. So, you know, also, I feel really proud to... What do you, yeah. what do you make of... Uh, I think Luke Shaw's having a great tournament and I'm buzzing that Gareth Southgate has given Harry Maguire the opportunity to pe for people to not slag him off. Because, I mean, if he makes a stupid mistake, then obviously we'll all slag him off. But I can't believe we've got moment, two United fans on. I'm going to go and make a cup of tea. Oh, Joe's no, a Spurs just, fan. Just tell him to go away. No, but you, have to remember, you have to remember what, you know... You have to remember what Luke Shaw's alias is Shaw Berto Carlos. That comes with a lot of... <laughs> You know, people know what he brings to the game. 
Do you know what I mean? So the <laughs> fact that he had a little, you know, um, Malasia came to United and, you know, we had him on the bench here and there. It doesn't change the fact that he's one of the greatest left-backs that's ever played the game. I think we all know that. Everyone on this call knows that. And um, he's just showing, he's just reminding everyone it's nothing new. Um, we've seen Shaw play this well and he just, you know, I don't expect anything less. Do you know what, right? And like, I like Luke Shaw, but the only thing he's got in common with Roberto Carlos is thick thighs. That's, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's it. If, if, listen, name me two better left-backs in this tournament than Luke Shaw. <laughs> to, be on, fair, to be fair, you might have got me there. You might yeah. have actually got Who's me there. Where? I can't uh, see them. Here in Trippier, if you switch sides and play him left back. Wow. <laughs> I'm wow. joking. Wow. I like Shaw. I like Shaw. Um, I noticed in the list of Manchester United players, you didn't mention Ronaldo, obviously. About a week has gone since he's officially left the club. So he's trying to claim Bruno Fernandez's goal against Uruguay. I don't know what, I don't know if that's meant to have hit a strand of hair or something. Was that Fernandez's goal or was that Cristiano's? It was absolutely Fernandez's goal. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm one of the few United fans that doesn't feel animosity or any bad feelings towards Cristiano Ronaldo. Same. Pro, you know, one of the greatest footballers to ever live. Um, he had a difficult summer. Um, losing, he lose, lost his kid, didn't he? Yeah. Yep. And I don't know what that experience is like, so I'm in no position to judge uh, the man. And maybe he's doing some things incorrectly or maybe he might look back and think, you know, there's something that he might have not done the same way, but I can't relate to his experience just now. So, yeah, I, I can't, I, I've never met anyone who's perfect, including, you know what I mean? So I'm sure Ronaldo's, uh, you know. And he's pretty perfect at quite a lot when it comes to football. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I'm not, he's only human as well. So I don't feel, you know, any bad feelings towards him. Yeah, and, and next up then, <clears throat> so England have Senegal. Um, we should win that, surely. Do you reckon? Yeah, so I'm thinking 7-0. Seven, 7. Oh, <laughs> you're going bold. Seven. You know, we're going I'm thinking bold. 7. Still no Ooh, Mane. Guys... Still no Sadio Mane. So, yeah. Do you know, seven, do you know, do you know may, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm overdoing it. 8-0? No? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Let's go. You don't think they'll get Let's one? Because remember, we do have Harry Maguire centre-back. Oh, do you know what? But Maguire's the best centre-back in the world, though, isn't he? I've enjoyed him. I think he's been great this tournament. With, with an England <laughs> shirt on, he's, he's on a, another level, isn't he, when he's playing for England, usually. Um, and do you know what? If just... I, yeah. Now, if I'm honest, like, it seems as though international football really suits him, you know? Yeah, yeah, it does. Like, the, the, the tempo, the, you know, the, it's, it's, I think it, it seems like a, a bit of a slower game than the Premier League. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... I think he looks good. It's hard to deny that he looks really good. He's looked good. One of the best centre-backs in the tournament so far. And how long have you been a United fan for? Um, As long as I've been on this earth, probably. (laughs) I think I was a United fan before I knew I was a United fan. I just had to come across them. And how often do you get to Old Trafford? Uh, Quite often, you know. um, More often than probably most fans from London. I say at least once every other home game. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I, um, yeah, quite often. Well, I remember when I was a kid, right? So Spurs, like when I was little, Spurs were awful. We're talking George Graham, Christian Gross, that kind of era. Terrible, terrible. Mm. And I remember turning around to my auntie and being like, is it okay if I support Brazil instead? <laughs> and she was like, no, no, you're born into yeah. this. It's like the yeah, mafia. Yeah, yeah. You can't get out. <laughs> <laughs> do, you know, do you know, I've got to admit, like when Brazil play, just for 90, minute, 90 minutes, I'm Brazilian. Yeah, 100%. Just everybody is. Right now, just for 90 minutes, knows, I'm Brazilian. We've got you here, mate. We're going to talk about your album in just one second, but I couldn't waste this opportunity, yeah. right? One of one of my great fantasies in life 
is that mm. one day I'll be I'll be doing something. I might be at a wedding or something or a birthday party. The band won't be there, and I will be asked to grab the mic. And today is a music theme special. We've got you on. Um, we've got someone on who's done an England song later. We've had fans sending in England songs as well. Mm-hmm. So I was walking the dog last night, and an idea came to me. So I've written an England rap for this World Cup. Would you yes, like to hear oh, it? I would absolutely be delighted to hear that. Bro. Okay, so <laughs> it's it's to the tune of Started From The Bottom, but we weren't sure if we could get, if we had the license to play that, so I'm going to do it a cappella. <laughs> a cappella, let's go a cappella, man. Here we go. Here we go, right? So Wow, wow, almost true. Right. Started with McLaren, now we're here. <laughs> Started with McLaren, now the best team bloody here. Started with McLaren, now we're here. Started with McLaren, now the best team bloody here. Used to play Heskey up front. Now we've got Rashford, mate, he scores when he wants, but it's not Rashford oh. on his own. Foden, Saka, Kane, maybe football's coming home. Oh, you want to know about centre mid? We've got a lad called Jude, pretty spicy for a kid, but the back four's looking kind of dangerous too. <laughs> Harry Max will nut your mum and he'll defo headbutt you because it started with McLaren, now we're here. Started with McLaren, now the best team, bloody oh, here. Started with McLaren. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow, Joe. Wow. I mean, wow. What, what do we think? Christmas oh, number one? Tonight. <laughs> yeah, right oh, last you know night. <laughs> like, that's got to be that's got to be up there, man. Um, yeah. I'm really considering what I do now and the <laughs> level I've been operating at because... <laughs> you know, you've opened my eyes to another another standard of yeah, rap. Yeah, I'm going to drop that so, on Instagram. So. I'm going to tag every MC going. And I'm just going to be like, <laughs> guys, girls, it's just time to hang up the mic because there's something new. I didn't no, know bro, if... It, I bet you get loads of people on TikTok and stuff and, and Instagram that will send you these videos. You know where you have to watch and be like, yeah, yeah, that's really yeah, yeah. good. You know where it's like, this is so yeah, yeah. bad. This is so cringe. Yeah, yeah. But you loved it. You genuinely loved it. Joe Forrester, get the guy in a studio, honestly. Listen, get that recorded. We, we, that, that, that needs to be recorded and the world needs to enjoy that on a regular basis because that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Have you got one for us? No, no, God, no, absolutely. Not, no. <laughs> Hannah does from time to time. Hannah does. Hannah does write a poem and do it in the voice of Sean Dyche. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very different kind of item. Let's yeah. hear <laughs> Well, you know, we're not going to win the league. We know that. You know, Sean Dyche is always around. Um, but yeah, I kind of do that sometimes. <laughs> that was good. That there was we good. go. Um, so anyway, we've just uh, you've just announced your debut album, "God Save the Streets." Um, Tell us about it. Yeah. So, uh, "God Save the Streets." I could tell you that. Um, I'll, t- I'll start with the inspiration for the album and the title. Uh, I remember looking at the artwork for, I remember looking at, I had we had the Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen yeah, yeah. on the screen. And all I could see was God Save the Streets until I eventually realised that that should be the title for my album. Because, um, you know, it meant something to me coming from where I'm coming from. Mm. And, you know, growing up uh, in, growing up in Tottenham, I wanted to, Make, I, I asked myself, what's the best thing I can make out of all of, you know, my more difficult experiences and story and my story? And how can I use my story to speak to and for the streets and, you know, show people what's possible when you put your mind to, uh, you know, being yourself? Because we all fall. Um, I, I noticed that most of my friends, you know, a lot of my friends that I grew up with fell victim to the vicious cycle in and out of jail you know, never really discovering who they are. So mm. I kind of just wanted to use my voice and my talent to 
do the best thing you can do for any other person, which is lead by example and say, listen, this is what I've made out of my difficult experiences. And God Save the Streets was born. Um, I got uh, Retri 2 is executive producing it. Nice. Um, with assistance from uh, Fraser T. Smith. Um, and uh, I've actually got um, Glenn Matlock, who plays, who played guitar in, uh, for the Sex Pistols. He's actually on my album as well, oh, which is wow. a great privilege. Yeah, which is yeah. brilliant privilege. Um, yeah. You know, it was fun to work with. I never actually linked up with him, but we was just going back and forth on the phone. And it was quite entertaining to just interact with him. And... Um, yeah, so, and God Save the Streets was born. So this is my debut offering. Um, it's been a while, like, put out mixtapes, etc. And I never really understood previously, I could never really articulate why I never committed to an album, but now I understand. It's just that I had to be there as a person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I had to, like, finally maybe fully trade you for maturity and get to a place where I am the person that can deliver this message through, you know, self reflection and do it do it justice because it's a it's an important title you know you don't, don't yeah. just go to the studio and you know make songs it's, it's more than about songs it's about what it represents and who you're speaking for and, and and you know standing the test of time so that's my debut album that's coming God Save the Streets I'm excited to share and can I just ask you I don't know if it's too early are we thinking about maybe festivals and stuff next summer are you already looking at that and maybe where you where you might be popping up do you know what? Uh, I hope my live agent is. He, he's brilliant. <laughs> he's brilliant. I hope he is. So we're due to have some conversations regarding that. But um, I haven't thought uh, that far ahead. You know, obviously we want to smash it and be all around the world and et cetera. But, but um, yeah, those are incoming conversations. These are incoming conversations. I'd love to perform everywhere. Yeah, and I, I mean, I myself would love to see you live. I'm sure everyone listening would as well. So go. And will you listen. get Will you get Joe on stage if you're at a festival 100%. or something? Will you get Joe up just to do support his... act? Yeah, o- o- only if you'll do that. Rap. Yeah, I can be yeah. I can be your flavor Flav. I'm just the hype man. Get the big clock <laughs> around my neck and everything like that. Ah, um, uh, bro, I welcome it. I welcome it. Go and get the album. God save the streets. Abelino's um, debut album. Um, nice one, mate. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on. Listen, thanks for having me. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Wicked. Thank you very much, Avelino there. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, mate. What right. a legend. Um, love that. Oh, Hannah, that's the most nervous I've ever been on the radio. Like, you like, looked as if you were getting a little bit sweaty. I, no, I feel really, literally, I'm sweating so much. Because um, oh, you, you get really twitchy, don't you, when you get overexcited. I've had quite, I had quite a big uh, coffee earlier as well. So I'm just, oh, it, oh that, that might be the best moment of my life. In what's ultimately be like, I mean, you you know that one of my lifelong ambitions is sometimes I watch those videos, right, of like rappers on the radio doing freestyles, and I think, oh god, like imagine if I was on the radio, like chatting to someone, and they were like, Joe, drop a verse, and then like, that's that's so that's sort of a lifelong fantasy. Isn't come it? True we're for we're me. so we're so different because I would watch like when I used to watch Gladiators when I was younger and see people got the travelator, and then I go to a shopping mall and I'd be like, I can do that. I can. Is this is this a way. chance for you to crowbar in the fact that you were on Gladiators? No, it actually isn't. It, it genuinely isn't. But I was actually on the last series of yeah. Gladiators, came second. Yeah. But, so, um, Hannah, I'm listening to a really good podcast at the moment. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I used to listen to Gladiators and actually ended up on it. So, as you know that. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <laughs> ended up marrying the head trainer. What are you going to do? <laughs> Whoops. Uh, right, okay. It is time to talk Denmark, the World Cup's a global event. Um, a lot of people had Denmark as, um, well, dark horses, I suppose, for the tournament, particularly with what happened with Christian Eriksen, obviously, at the Euros, um, then them getting all the way to the semi-finals. So with us now is Liam Baker. He's a sports journalist at TV3 Sport in Denmark. Um, so we're going to bring Liam in now. And as I said, Denmark were a team that I certainly thought 
well, would at least get out the groups, perhaps. Absolutely. Um, it little... seemed to be to be a bit of a given, to be honest. Well, this is it. And given the kind of, uh, I think, the upsets that we've seen since with kind of Germany and Belgium going out, maybe people have missed this a little bit. But um, Liam Baker's with us now. Hi, Liam. Hello, Joe. How are you? Yeah, Hi. very well. Thank you, mate. Um, Hi, Anna. So Hiya. Denmark are going home after losing to Australia. Um, what's the reaction been like back in Denmark? Um, it's a strange one, really. I mean, obviously, all the hype after the good Euros they had, they were phenomenal in qualification. They beat France twice. Yes, a weakened French team. And I think, you know, a lot of media had them as dark horses. Yep. Yeah. Um, but again, because Denmark is at the forefront of human rights and equality, and I know so many people boycotting the tournaments. Um, because it was in Qatar, a lot of it, there was a different feeling, and of course, I mean, from a football standpoint, the the words, well, it's pathetic. The three group games they played were pathetic, but it doesn't feel like they come home with so much doom and gloom as I actually think there should be. So, what do you think it was that that went wrong? Because, like you say, you know, off, off the back of the Euros and and everything that happened with Christian Eriksen, and then seeing them go on to perform so well off the back of that that shock um, with Christian Eriksen, there was a lot of expectation on Denmark. But what is it? Do you think that went wrong with the team and the performance? Well, firstly, I think a lot of the players they were not they were not match fit. A lot of the players were struggling. Um, but he stuck with his favourites. For it, I mean, he he changed it in the third game against Australia. Mm. He took out yeah. the captain, switched to a back four. Yes, but Lindstrom was in again, who had been fantastic for Frankfurt. But it was just it was slow. There was no cohesion. There just it really did seem like they didn't want to be there. But from a cynical perspective, you know the the good Euros, which was of course built on the tragic day against Finland when Ericsson fell. I mean, then they lose to Belgium and they're handed, they have to beat Russia in their own stadium. And then they play Wales and the Czech Republic before obviously, you know, being the underdogs at Wembley, which it's different to play England at Wembley than play Tunisia and expect to have all the ball and also Australia. Liam, you mentioned that... um... Denmark generally as a country had been quite critical of the decision to hold the tournament in Qatar. Um, mm. What was the reaction like in the in the build-up to the World Cup? Um, yeah, well, of course, a lot of negativity. There was a lot of documentaries in the different Danish medias that had travelled to Qatar, obviously highlighting all the issues. I don't know if you saw the Denmark shirt. Um, I don't know if it's Hummel's uh, moral backbone or mm. a marketing genius. They'd faded all the logos because they didn't want the Danish logo to be on show in such a country. I didn't this notice shirt, that. No. But actually the third kit was black. They never got to play in it. But that shirt was selling more in Germany and Austria than their own country's national team shirts. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, Simon Kier, the captain, he wanted them to wear T-shirts during training sessions in support of human rights. Um like I said, Denmark is at the forefront of equality. The whole of Scandinavia is really. I think perhaps if we, if they'd have had some support, perhaps, perhaps if Sweden had been there, mm. I think you might have seen, of course, wearing the rainbow armband was going to give them a fine and the captain a yellow card. So then that takes 
you know, that takes it out on the sporting integrity. Was there disappointment in, in Denmark, though, when the yellow, because there certainly was, obviously, in the UK, when, when Kane didn't wear and, and Bale didn't wear the One Love Armband. Was that yeah. similar in Denmark? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But then, obviously, Kasper Jungmann came out and he also, yes, it's in Qatar. Yes, we all know the background surrounding it. But he was there to manage the national team in a tournament that is once every four years. That's the pinnacle of his career yeah. and the player's career. He was there to manage his football team and his captain should not start with a yellow card. You know, there's discussion, OK, we will let the third-choice goalkeeper wear the armband in the warm-up and different things. But once it once the sporting, you know, gets affected, then obviously, you know, they were right. I think that there's a lot of talk about England and Germany are referenced a lot. You know, I think if they'd have had support from perhaps a bigger nation, if you like, mm. and then perhaps, you know, if they'd have certainly joined the movement, but they wouldn't have started the movement. Um, Liam, thank you very much. Um, we're going to have yeah, to leave it there, you. but thank you so much. It's really good to hear the, the voice from, from Denmark and to hear what, what people are thinking over there. Liam Baker there, sports journalist at TV3 Sport in Denmark. Okay, so it's time for the big conversation, and today we're talking about FIFA corruption. This is the part of the show where we look in-depth at uncensored conversations around the controversies facing this year's World Cup. Um, everybody knows about FIFA and corruption and that those two words, to be honest tend to go together, but they might not know the ins and outs of it. After the Qatar uh, bid for the 2022 World Cup was successful back in 2010, questions were raised over how a country that was known more for its poor human rights record and less about its football managed to win the right to host one of the most prestigious sports tournaments in the world. There's also issues around Sepp Blatter, various FIFA vice presidents, the awarding of the World Cup to Russia in 2018. And now it's time for a deep dive into all of these factors. With us are Benita Merciades, member of the senior management team for Australians, uh, Australia's 2018 and 2022 FIFA World Cup bid, and then latterly a FIFA whistleblower herself, and Alan Tomlinson, professor of leisure studies at the University of Brighton, expert on FIFA and the history and politics of sport as a spectacle. Um, Alan, let's start with you. Let's start right at the beginning. Um, can you take us back to the beginnings of FIFA and why it was set up in the first place? Well, yeah, the beginnings of FIFA were rooted in Europe in 1904 with seven participating original um, members, nations, in a little room uh, in, in a, a small building in Paris. Um, it, it, not everybody was, could make it. We've got a transport problem. Oh, oh, just quite have these days. But um, it was a Western initiative. Uh, it got off the ground. It had a strange relationship with the English Football Association and the uh, other home nations from, from the United Kingdom uh, who, who got in quite early and got the president two or three years into FIFA's history. It then had a, a, a gradual evolution um, we, we, we always wanted to aim for a serious big event to almost brand it, to use that, that, that kind of more modern term, so to build a profile. Uh, so it didn't have a World Cup until 1930 when it persuaded Uruguay to, to host it. 
um, the World Cup, uh, and that was a celebration on a political, historical sense for Uruguay because it was a hundred-year anniversary of its own constitution. So that there's a and people had very complicated relationships. Things like the International Olympic Committee, uh, where most of the international football competition was going on in the Olympics for some time. That's another story. So, but people did evolve, and, and it evolved um, also with, with a little model that's really important here. You can get very dull on detail, so I don't want to go into that dull detail. But it, it is a fact that the first confederation with a relationship to FIFA uh, was the South American one, with, with 10 members now, just 10 members of the, the uh, Commonwealth. The words are very strange and they can be unpicked and so on. But, but, but then later on, it became apparent to certain leaders of FIFA, not least an Englishman called Sir Stanley Rouse, who was president of FIFA, after a long career at the English Football Association um, and a bit of a colonialist but, but a, a benign colonialist in, in my own view historically but the, the, the project there was to give FIFA a global representation across all continents which essentially led to the setting up of new confederations that were affiliated to FIFA but have their relative autonomy and they were in 1954, UEFA, the European one, 1954, also the Asian Football Confederation. That's vital. It was uh, in the game early. 1957, the African one was set up. Um, 1961 was, was uh, CONCACAF, which is a com complicated sort of melange of small and mighty nations in the Central and North Americas. Um, and then finally in 66, a big, a big, big date for some of us in our, in our football um, fanatical lives, in 66, Oceania was established. And now that set up a global uh, operation and, and the aspirations of further people following Rouse were, were also to make this a bigger kind of economic phenomenon in order to, to, to grow that global profile. That, that's the basic, it's a bit of a kind of summary there, mm. and there's yeah. many, many, many sub-story plots and so on, uh, but that, that, that was the, 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 the general pattern that gives us this world body feedback with these six affiliated associations uh, who are very difficult to control and who all have different levels of representation in numbers. You have most members, 55, Africa 54, Asia 46, um, Commonwealth 10, Oceania 11, and um, and the CONCACAF melange, that I called it, at 35 votes in a FIFA Congress. But that, that's, that gives you a sort of broad historical, socio-political mm. picture about what kind of politics, corporations and ambitions can build up in a strange and very, very much far from accountable global body like FIFA. When would you say that um, we start to see the, the corruption within the organisation? Well, there's always a bit of corruption. In 1932, I think it was, when FIFA moved out of Paris base and so on, uh, it, it, moved to, it moved to Switzerland, but their then secretary em embezzled a load of money, claiming that he, was, he had it in the best interest to cope with problems from the, the great crash of the late 20s. So yeah, he ran off with the money, essentially. FIFA gave him a pension, sent him back to his home country and, and didn't mention it much after that. But... but the, the kind of the, the forms of corruption were, were, were certainly linked to the decisions about 
where you would place the cash cow at FIFA, which was the, the men's FIFA World Cup. And, and the more the more the confederations came into the picture, the more there, there were sort of forms of geopolitical alliances um, linked to the rhetoric of development. We develop football for the world. Football can go everywhere as long as we can give you the right kinds of resources, support and so on to create an infrastructure and a plan. And so once FIFA started to have those sets of interests, people started to do deals behind, behind, you know, behind closed doors, the smoky rooms, all those cliches mm. that, that, that people would say, all right, you try to work up that year, four years later, uh, it rotated anyway in its first years a bit between South America and Europe. Uh, but but you, you do that, uh, we'll do that for you. And, and so all sorts of, of, of aspirational deals uh, began to be made. And the more that money came into the game, the big money following um, Yao Havelai, who's the Brazilian mm. president of FIFA for 20 odd years, uh, came into the picture, the, the more the, the, the kind of people coming in to, to get arms rate to, to confederations of FIFA, the more they were combining the aspirations to do with, 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 with power and profile of particular kinds of nations um, with, with, with um, financial, in a lot of cases, uh, financial excesses, to put it politely, and then you know, forms, of, forms of development and relationships with things like big marketing companies such as international sport and leisure which was critical in the late mm. in, in the 80s to, to this, this uh, bankruptcy in 2002 so so it became it, it was about it was the eight it was after rouse had gone Havelange was in was in with him in the early years and, and was the lieutenant throughout until Blatter became the FIFA president in 1998 in a coup, in, 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 in a in a vote in Paris against a European um, candidate who was the Swiss Democrat Leonard Johansson. So the, the, the stakes became higher, the ambitions became more and more high level, and, and, and in terms of Asia, there's a very interesting sub-story there about the emergence of the Gulf states. And Benita, let's bring you in. So. You were in the room in 2010 when Qatar and Russia were announced as as the winners. What was what was that like being in the room at, at that point, and and how quickly were you aware that that perhaps something suspicious was going on? Well, actually, I wasn't in the room. You weren't in the room when it was announced. <laughs> I, I was in Sydney, but in terms of what did I feel when um, Russia and Qatar were announced as winners? Um, it was no surprise. Uh, quite frankly, um, it was always uh, fairly clear to me that Russia was favoured to win 2018. Mm. And um, what people, a lot of people ignored in relation to Qatar in 2022 were two things. One, um, that they had this powerful emotional argument, which they used to great, um, you know, they did it very well of what does it take for the Middle East to host a World Cup? Mm. which, you know, we're thinking, go back to 12 years ago, that was actually a very powerful argument at that time. We were still only nine years after 9-11. Um, but the other one is that they had very deep pockets. So while bids like the Australian bid were corrupt and had people working for them who did dodgy things um, and had a reputation for doing dodgy things, um, they just didn't have pocket. We, Australia didn't have pockets as deep as Qatar, and Qatar used a whole lot of uh, 
mechanisms at their disposal um, very strategically and very cleverly to make sure that they won that World Cup. Let's talk about... Let's talk about those, um, sorry, Hannah, those consultants just quickly involved in the Australian bid. Um, who were these people and, and what did it kind of become clear to you that, that they were doing? Uh, well, the three international consultants uh, were called, their names are Peter Hargitay, uh, Fedor Radman and Andreas Abold. Um, it became clear almost immediately that I was told that we had employed them. Um, because in the same breath in which I was told that we had engaged these people and they were going to win us the World Cup because they knew everybody that they needed to know in FIFA and, you know, they would uh, they would um, con convince people to vote for us, I was also told, and bearing in mind I was a senior executive of the team and head of communications and public affairs, I was told don't tell anyone. We don't announce it. We don't even tell government who was funding our bid to the tune of $50 million. And, you, you know, if if that didn't ring alarm bells in anyone, they were sort of not really awake or alive to what was going on. Um, and that immediately rang alarm bells because it just didn't make sense that you were, on the one hand, employing these gun consultants who were going to win you the bid, but on the other hand, you couldn't tell anyone about it. And then when you said, Benita, that you you kind of lost your job, lost your role because you'd raised concerns, what was said to you um, when you were told that you'd lost your job effectively? How did they word that to you? And what uh, the uh, well, I, I think, you know, le legally they used some excuse that I'd written an email in which I had, um, uh, had alluded to one of the consultants being the reason for being a problem. Um, but, you know, sometime later I was told by my boss that it just got too difficult to have me and the consultants there because consultants were complaining about me as much as I was complaining about them. And after all, they cost $15 million and were going to win us the World Cup bid. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, it, it was pretty easy to say, well, she goes. And, and, and how you, know, you know, in 12 years later, can I say there's also a gender issue in all of that as well? Mm. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't raise that at the time. It wasn't something that people took notice of, but um, it very clearly was a gender issue as well. Uh, I do believe that if I had been a man in that situation, I would have been treated differently. Yeah, yeah, I strongly believe that as well. Um, were you sceptical then of how Russia and Qatar managed to win the bids? What was your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was there was no doubt from our perspective that we were trying to do a deal with Russia. There was just absolutely no doubt. Um, and uh, you know, one of one of the there were a couple of basic flaws in the bidding process which FIFA set up. And one of those was having a um, a vote for two tournaments at the same time because what that meant was anyone with half a brain was going to try and do a deal with any country that was bidding for the opposite World Cup to what they were. So uh, almost all of the bidders were trying to do a deal between 2018 and 2022 and go into that voting room with a, a sort of select group of votes themselves. So we were trying to do a deal with Russia. Um, but it was, you know, it was clear from a range of things that happened and a range of things there where we were trying to satisfy demands from various people. And, you know, we've also heard about a lot of other demands from various people, various voters of other bidders, um, that 
whatever we did publicly about how we positioned our bid, however great a World Cup would be hosted in Australia, which we are doing in 2023, um, it was nonetheless, it, that was irrelevant to what the actual decision was. The decision was always going to be ba- made on the basis of, as, as Alan alluded to, the deals, the double deals and the counter deals. It was nothing to do, it was nothing to do with merit. Alan, let me ask you. Oh, yeah, of course, Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Quite, quite quickly. There's a very interesting little historical fact that Sir Stanley Rouse himself, in the late sixties, early seventies, was worried about all this deal making because then the whole Congress had the vote for allocating World Cups. So he said, "Yeah, um, it doesn't like that. We don't like that kind of arguing." So our little committee, i.e., the executive committee, will take over that responsibility. And, and, and that's what led to the kind of thing that um, the wonderful detail that Vanitas is talking about um, kind of illustrates. And, and it, of course, since then, in, in, in debates about FIFA reform, they, they, they've handed the decision back, FIFA's handed the decision back to the Congress with its 211 potential votes. Um, so... The, 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 the Rouse decision had the opposite effect to what he thought he would have because it, it, perhaps he was a little bit too trusting of, of the colleagues in the overall picture. And, and just a quick point too, it's very interesting when it's ST you talk about, about this, um, I've got to hold your brilliant book up. To the, mm-hmm. the, 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 Thank the, you, Alan. Giving us such insights in whatever, whatever, whatever make it happen. Um, but Hargitay, you say, you say there's a lot of dodgy characters in these stories and there really are. I mean, Hargitay, in the early years of this century, I think it was, I'll have to check my files on some of this, it was keeping a file on me at that point, a file on us, because we wrote about these issues. I never saw the file, but um, I know that it existed. And, and, and so the, 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 these people operated as, as semi-secret agents in terms of networks and contacts and information actives. Uh, were not they were not what I would call objective consultants. I think, Benita, she might agree with that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, ha- having worked in senior executive roles in government and the not-for-profit sector, you deal with a lot of consultants over over the years, and uh, these were not ordinary consultants. Um, they did they didn't write reports. They didn't provide sort of uh, any any sort of accountability for what they did, um, and yet they prided themselves on the fa- fact that they could do things such as dirt files. And you know, as well as Alan, there were people such as the late Andrew Jennings that they kept tabs on. <laughs> it was almost a full-time job for them to keep a, keep tabs on people such as Alan and people such as Andrew Jennings who were merely trying to hold people to account. And, Alan, let me, you, you mentioned secret agents. The other comparisons kind of that have come up for myself kind of doing the reading and the research has been, reminds me of Blatter's FIFA in particular, of uh, Stalin's, Politburo that kind of feels similar to me with the executive committee, um, but almost like a, a mafia family. I think they also yeah, the Fuhrensgruppe. The Fuhrensgruppe <laughs> was the term that Blatter's close elite was known as. Well, the, the one, the three or four, five who really made the decisions. And let's let's talk about these guys. So under Set Blatter, I mean, there's there's a few characters in particular, and it does have those oh, comparisons, okay. kind of to to organised crime. I mean, you talk about people like Chuck, uh, Chuck Blazer, who was eventually turned FBI informant, like something from a Scorsese movie. But let's talk about Blatter and, and Jack Warner in 
in particular. Um, what role did did they have in awarding the World Cups in Qatar and Russia, Alan? Well, well, Blazer was an opportunist, and um, and I interviewed him in the Trump Tower in 1996 <laughs> or seven. He had a couple of duplexes uh, there, did he? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he, had, he, did, he did have one for his public so-called um, office, you know, uh, which had cap parrots in we had, to, we had to close down the parrots before uh, our interview could get going really uh, and then then he had his big private super residence I, I didn't have the privilege to go into Ferris private super residence uh, but but it but it was quite yeah he, he did have a PA to shut up the parrots so anyway that's one side thing but what 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 he talked about was the global marketplace of sport he was also a canny businessman, and, and, and the media loved him because he always had a story. And also, he began to look like Father Christmas, or, <laughs> or you know, a very strange kind of uh, comic figure. When, when what, what was he really doing? He, he was developing networks, taking ten percent of every deal in the Americas that he had involvement with as the general secretary of that federation. Um, so, so he was general secretary, and Jack Warner was the president. In, in, in Trinidad and, and Tobago. Uh, it's very hard to talk to Jack Warner. I mean, there's a great image that, uh, that you may know from, from Andrew Jennings, like, you know, trying to get a microphone in front of him and, 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 and Warner abusing him and so on. Uh, so so uh, Warner's still out there, but of course, potentially still able to perhaps be indicted or charged on many things. But, but because the Confederation there was growing, in, in, in the North Americas and, and so on with, with numbers of people. There were more and more deals and more and more activities and more and more money flowing into these networks. So, and um, they, they, they became, both of them at the time, very influential members of that executive committee uh, when there were very different kind of arguments at different, for different World Cups, you know, about how South Africa didn't get it early or got it later. So they became um, what they saw as almost autonomous power brokers um, in, in the world beyond their, their own confederations um, boundaries, if you like. Uh, and utterly ruthless. I mean, but w w Warner was an utterly ruthless figure and, and, and a hugely influential politician more generally in Trinidad and, and Tobago. And um, this so they, they, they were people who, not so answerable, Blackter at certain times used them, but Blackter also felt that he was losing control of them. And also when you, when you say they were power brokers and they, so kind of greasing the wheels of, of operations and, votes and the way things happened that was taking kickbacks wasn't it but bluntly oh yeah yeah in different 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 forms you know that the, the the great work of of the fbi and the inland revenue service uh, and then the department of justice has revealed that in forensic detail of, of established forms of corruption and and, and laundering and, and and money money laundering worldwide it, it, it it's, it's riveting to be honest to see that and for, for these people to be allowed to get away with it it's a really important question that about how how fifa does or doesn't regulate itself and mostly despite some very good forms of support we see from FIFA now three women match officials tonight in the Germany Costa Rica game is a, a, a massive thing to, to, to achieve yeah. women's world women's world cup next year in, in in New Zealand Australia will be wonderful 
and I hope not tainted, but there's so much uh, that still hasn't been done to establish that uh, how FIFA might be properly monitored and so on. So these people were really allowed to, to go their own way here and there, not least because of the supine nature of the Swiss legal system. Yeah, and I've got a, a question to you, Benita. You've been calling for an independent reform into FIFA. Um, what changes would you like to see made to FIFA? Um, well, I... <laughs> Fundamentally, it needs a complete overhaul. Um, it hasn't, despite the fact that we've had a new president since 2016, mm. um, the way that it works hasn't really changed. They've done some stuff at the edges. For instance, as Alan said earlier, we now have votes for the World Cup um, from 211 member nations. So it is a little bit more difficult to get around and and uh, bribe or um, half of 211 as opposed to half of 24. Um, but um, what they've done very well is they've developed some policies, they've developed some processes, uh, they've done a lot of PR and done a lot of glossy PR, which makes them look good, but they haven't fundamentally changed. And there's no greater example of that than their human rights policy. They engaged one of the world's experts to come up with their human rights policy, um, one of the world's leading experts, if not the leading expert, the late Professor John Ruggie of Harvard University. So it's a first-class human rights policy, but FIFA, I mean, we have a president in FIFA who only a couple of weeks ago said people shouldn't talk about human rights, so they should just get on and play football. Well, I give as a great example of that the Australian team, which actually did talk about human rights and actually has made the round of 16, despite not being a, any sort of team of, of names. Um, but, it, you know, you've got a it's being held in a country that... Let, let alone all of the issues around the human rights of building the stadiums and let alone the workers' rights issues in Qatar. Um, and those issues came up, I have to say, after the vote. No one ever raised them before 2 December 2010. Um, but they came up afterwards. But putting aside even those, even in more recent times, Qatar, who is the current host of the World Cup, has voted either to abstain or support Russia in the United Nations when it comes to Ukraine. So how can you have a human rights policy in FIFA when the World Cup is being held in a country that supports a country that is completely obliterating the human rights of another member nation of FIFA? And FIFA sits by and says absolutely nothing. And that's a really good example of where they have a policy, but nothing makes any difference. They just don't want to do anything. And so I always characterise that as this. When it comes to an issue of culture versus process, culture wins every time. And the culture hasn't changed in FIFA and it won't change in FIFA unless there's a complete overhaul. And I, I, I believe that the only way we can do that is to start all over again. So, so rebuild a, perhaps an a entirely new organisation with external oversight to, to oversee football? Yeah, and to be fit for purpose. And, you know, the world, picking the World Cup um, hosts is a great example. I mean, first of all, having a 48-nation World Cup, you know, putting, I, I actually don't agree with that, but putting aside that we have it, that's going to limit the number of countries who can actually host it anyway. But there's no reason why the 211 member nations need to even make that decision. It could be assessed on an external basis by independent experts based on published criteria, um, including the financial criteria, which is important, but 
FIFA don't want to publish that aspect of it because that's where they actually can do some dodgy deals, um, as they have for 2026 as well as 2022. So, you know, there, there are things such as that which could be changed. Um, you know, if FIFA, FIFA says football can unite the world, and it can, but how can it when you've got a FIFA president or an ambassador for FIFA, such as that Qatari gentleman recently who said that people, gay people have some sort of mental deficiency? Mm. I mean, and, and FIFA just lets that be said. I, I mean, how can anyone take them seriously? The mask slips there, you know, just as you said, but when it's just, uh, said that example of the, of the ambassador. Uh, so so the, the, the so-called tolerance, the new new sort of uh, reform elements of, of the Qatari state itself, that they're both they're, they're, because these things slip quite a lot. There's some recent debates. Just, just the other day, a, a consultative council, I think it's a religious body, a sure council, um, in, in Qatar was, was, was publishing condemnations of, of, of people talking about rights and raising this as, as, a, as a moral issue as, and as a form of tyranny against, against the, the Qatari state that these protests were being uh, allowed to happen. And, and, and Infantino, mm. I'm afraid, is, is looking like a very tragicomic figure with, with his performances in the last week and two weeks or so. I think Benitez is dead right to say that this is such a, such a, a difficult set of situations to, to have time over and over again without an easy solution about what can resolve it. Yeah. Some of us are spending a lot of our time trying to get good answers to that question. Can I just add, you know, Qatar said the other day in relation to the BBC that the BBC were being racist because they were raising issues about human rights. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, I come from a country where we have a uh, we have had a 200 plus year problem in terms of how we have dealt with our indigenous population, and we have a poor record. But we have accountability around that we have something called closing the gap we are putting we as a as a nation and as a people are putting money into it we report on it every year um that's the difference we actually are trying to do something about it and there when things go wrong such as workers rights or racism or anything like that we actually try to fix it but Qatar doesn't even accept that these things exist and, you know, for, for them to turn around and say that we're being racist because we raise these issues, we're not being racist. If they did something about it, there wouldn't be anything to raise. And let's be frank, yeah, they, they could, the compensation scheme, which people such as organisations such as FIFPRO have co called for to compensate the Nepalese workers and other workers, the families of other workers who have lost their lives building stadiums and infrastructure, it's a drop in the ocean for the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund. An absolute drop in the ocean. It's also a drop in the ocean for the $7 billion in reserves that FIFA's holding. So it would be a huge symbol and a, and a, a practical way of addressing some of these issues by fulfilling the request for that compensation fund. But instead, they say no. They absolutely, they, they won't even discuss it. They won't even come to the table. And yet FIFA tries to say that they're uniting the world. They're not uniting the world. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. Honestly, it's it's a fascinating topic. And I urge anybody who's listening, who's watching, um, the hashtag on social media is new FIFA now. 
go and read Benita's book, whatever it takes, the inside story of the FIFA way. Um, Alan has written copiously about this. Um, FIFA, the men, the myths and the money and football corruption and lies, revisiting bad fellas. Um, there's so much stuff out there. There's great TV documentaries as well. Please educate yourself on this. It will blow your mind because I think as football fans, a lot of us are, are passively allowing this clandestine, nefarious mafia organization to run global football and it's to the detriment football everywhere but also people and their their quality of life um look thank you so much alan tomlinson thank you so much uh, benita merciades thank you so thank much you. thank you thank you thank you okay so it's time for the world cup's funniest moments and obviously you've already heard my stab at christmas number one when i dropped my rap earlier if you uh, if you haven't heard that do check out the social media um but also there's been a load of songs doing the rounds this week as fans have been having loads of fun we had one of our listeners get in touch with some of his own uh, little ditties um, a bit earlier. And in just a second, we're going to be talking to Maddox Jones as well, who's actually got a proper decent England song out, um, unlike <laughs> my attempts. Um, right, okay. But first up, let's talk about the song that's been doing the rounds on TikTok and Instagram. Let's hear a little bit of the fairy tale of Qatar. They've got cars, biggest cars. They've got rivers of stones. Harry Kane goes right through you and heads for the goal. When they first qualified on that cold Wembley, they promised me Grealish was waiting for me. He's handsome, he's pretty, he plays for Man City. When the crowd finished singing, they call out for sure. Saka was winning, Connor Cody was chilling. They embodied the spirit of old Bobby Moore. The boys of Southgate's England team are sat upon a throne. And the crowd is singing out, it's coming home. Oh, man, I love football. Um, we witnessed the spice of genius there, have we? <laughs> Do you know what? We've got Maddox Jones with us now. And Maddox, yeah, genius, you called it. What are your first thoughts on the fairy tale of Qatar? Um, I think I'm just going to pack up and go home. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's great. Do you know what? Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it is a bit of a weird World Cup, isn't it? And like, you know, it's not got the same... You know, people are still obviously really excited about it, but as you, there's no, it's, it's weird having it in the winter, isn't it? And I think like people doing this mashup of Christmas and like uh, Christmas and football songs actually really works this year, doesn't it? So I think it's good. Well, you've got your own song out. We're all here together. Um, why, why did you want to release a World Cup song? Uh, well, I'm, a, a friend of mine, he's a fan. He's actually like a, uh, he, he's a president of a Wheelstone Football Club. He lives in Northampton and he rang me up and he was like, he manages the Wheelstone Raider. Do you know the Wheel? Do you remember I the Wheelstone Raider? I remember the Wheelstone Raider. Right. So he was like, "Do you want to do a song and then get him on it?" Like so, uh, as a little. So I, um, so yeah, he he gave me the idea, and me and my mate Dave uh, uh, just got in the studio and had a couple of Guinness and wrote wrote a song. It's actually turned out pretty good. And then we got the Wheelstone Raiders to do a little intro at the start, and uh, it's it's for charity as well. So it's for two charities. Um, a rocking road running, which is for adults with disabilities, and then also Wheelstone Youth Football Club. So we wanted to put a bit of money back into football. So there you go. I tell you what, let's hear a little snippet of it now. Actually, go on. What a banger. Do you know what that says to me, Maddox? That is in the pub, 
England have just snuck past Senegal with yeah, maybe a suspicious mate. last minute penalty and we're all jumping up and yeah, down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Is that the idea? Yeah, it's, it's gone down really well. It's got like almost uh, it's got 80,000 views on YouTube. Uh, we've had about a, bit, a million views on TikTok from people using it in videos and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's all right. It's, um, I don't think there's as much. I think as we go through the competition, it's going to, it would just, it can only do better for the song, isn't it? So, what do you think are the key to... ingredients to a great World Cup anthem? Like, just got to be like, it's got to sound like men, like boys in the pub can just <laughs> sing it and go really badly and it still sound good. Like, oh, it's got to be like, you've got to be able to like, not many words and um, just an easy tune to sing along, isn't it? Speaking of, of boys in the pub, I'm delighted to say that uh, listener Bobby Bunsen has been in touch all the way from New York. He's got a few of his own creations and we don't have time to play them all because he did send in quite a few. But <laughs> let's listen to um, a couple of his efforts and see what we think. Great. Hey, Jude, don't make us sad. Take the match ball and score a header. Remember, it's England in your heart. When you start, you make us better. Uh, and let's see the next one, which is about Phil Foden. He's electric. He's not even turned 23 yet. Man of the match is a safe bet. His name's Phil Foden. And the last one is about Bakaya Saka. <laughs> I like it, I like it, I like it, I like it. Oh, whoa, whoa, here we go. Saka's taking over the world. Can I just say, right? You're... Hey, I, love, I love his accent. Where's he from, do you reckon? <laughs> I mean, that, that's a, he sounds like a Yorkshireman to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love, I love how he's like. He doesn't really. He tells like he doesn't care, but he's like he's put a lot of thought into it as well. Do you know what I mean? And also, you're living in New York, the most exciting, glamorous city yeah. in the world, and he's sat on his own, probably in the toilet at the office, yeah, recording yeah. there. <laughs> oh, that is, that is incredible! Please do keep sending your songs in. Um, absolutely love it. Um, obviously, you mentioned you work with the Wilson Raider. Yeah. Um, legend of football social media <laughs> football fans know him what was that like yeah i mean he's just uh, he, he he became accidentally famous didn't he about mm. a rat of, uh, so i haven't i haven't actually met him yet um we did it <laughs> over voice note we did it over voice note um so he just sent a voice note in basically how excited were you when you saw you had a voice note from the wilson <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah, man, it's pretty sweet. Like, we, we just told him what to say. We were like, if you want some, we'll give it you. <laughs> yeah, he just did it, yeah. It's pretty oh, fun. Um, amazing. Oh, I do want to meet him. I'm trying to meet him, but, like, every time... I went to a Wildstone game last week, and he didn't even turn up. So, <laughs> hopefully this week. He's a bit unreliable, is the old Wilson Raider, man. You've got to get him down for a Christmas party of some sort. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, right, Maddox, just just finally, where can we hear the single? Where can we get it? We want to give it a big push uh, so for Christmas number charity, one. So I know people stream music, but if you can, if any of you want to support a charity and like uh, listen, uh, own a banging Christmas song, if you go on my TikTok or, or Instagram or YouTube, it's just it's Maddox Jones. And then there's a link to buy it uh, for 99p from iTunes or Amazon. And all of the money goes to charity. And um, yeah, if you want to watch the video, because the video is really good. It's like a... It's on YouTube. Just type in Maddox Jones. We're all here together. Um, and it's kind of like a bit of a Guy Ritchie kind of movie. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good. It's a good one. 
yeah, make sure you go and get it, support it. It's for a great cause. It's a wicked song as well. Um, come on, England. Yeah, nice one, Matt. <laughs> nice one, Maddox. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it, mate. Okay, that's it for today. Thank you very much to all of our guests, of course. Thank you very much to Avelino, um, my brand new uh, mental so cool. in the He's world of so music. Cool. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to uh, Liam Baker from TV3 Sport in uh, Denmark. Of course, thank, sorry, thank you very much to Liam Baker from TV3 in Denmark. Thank you very much to Benita Merciades and Professor Alan Tomlinson. And of course, a big thank you to Maddox Jones, who's another one of our musical guides. Um, next week, we're going to be reviewing and analysing the latest games with musician Maulo. And the big conversation is all about sports washing and the problems with celebrity endorsement. Um, Hannah, you got any more plans to be hanging out with royalty or is it back down bongos in North Allerton? It's probably just down Weatherspoons for tea. You know, two for one kind of vibe for this week, but never mind. Well, there you go. You know where to find Hannah East. Um, you can find us on social media as well. Please get in touch. We love it when you do. And we'll see you later. Bye.